0: Tēnā koutou katoa, welcome. Um, And a big thank you to all of you who have turned out on this rather um, challenging morning for an even more challenging topic, embracing death. I was just speaking to one of our authors, um, Caitlin Doherty, a minute ago, and she thinks it's probably the first time in her entire life she has ever turned up for a public event at 9 o'clock in the morning.
1: I congratulate you all. I'm very impressed.
0: So that's a cruel and unusual thing we do. Um, Exactly what it means to embrace death and why it might be good for us as individuals and as a society is um, the topic of this morning's discussion. But I think the fact that you've all left your warm beds um, at this hour to participate in this session suggests that you are not part of what Caitlin Doherty sometimes describes as the death denial culture. We're going to talk about death denial and and what that might mean, Um, but first of all, I just want to quickly introduce you to our panellists. So Caitlin Doherty, Hawaiian-born, with the rather catchy trade title of a licensed mortician and an advocate for the reform of what she describes as the Western funeral industry. Next to me is Matt Vickers, who I think will be known to many of you. He's New Zealand-born, but now resident in New York, where he works for our um, Star Zero accounting company, software um, company, and he's become an accidental writer um, by fate and an advocate for the legal reform in support of assisted dime. In the middle, we have our own local expert in death, Dr Ruth McManus. She's a lecturer at Canterbury University who's researched and written extensively about our attitudes and practices around death and dying across culture and time. I have to um, first of all just thank the session supporters, the Christchurch Art Gallery and text publishers who have um, (coughs) brought Matt here for the launch of his um, book, which is actually launched in Parliament on Monday. Mm -hmm. Um, I also have to just briefly... um, have a bit of a disclaimer and explain who I am and why I'm in this seat as well before I ask my um, panellists to do the same. So, um, Matt and I know each other through an accident of work. Um, I worked with his um, wife, now deceased, Lucretia, at the New Zealand Law Commission, where, bizarrely, I was working on um, the reform of the New Zealand um, Cremations and Burial Act. And at the time that um, Lucretia was first diagnosed, with inoperable um, and incurable cancer, she was also on that project. And I remember the morning that she looked at me and in a typically wry, dry way said, Kate, I'm not going to be working on this project with you because I'm in practice for death. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like just to start um, this morning by asking each of our three panellists to speak briefly about why it is death has become a focus in their lives. Um, because I think that way we'll perhaps understand a little bit about what the drivers and motivators are for them. And then we'll move on to get into the topic. I'm going to leave a healthy 15 to 20 minutes at the end of the session um, for questions, because I'm sure you've all come here with plenty of them. So I might start with Caitlin.
1: Sure. Hello. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so I grew up in Honolulu in Hawaii. And when I was about eight years old, I was at a local shopping mall and there was a small child that was climbing up on the balcony and she fell. And I was right there and I saw it and I experienced it and the chaos and it was almost like that girl fell into the center of fear in my body because growing up we didn't talk about death at all in my house. My father had been in the Vietnam War for two years. We didn't talk about that, it was just hard things like that weren't discussed. So I developed a very, very hearty fear of death as a young woman. I was constantly worried that my mom was gonna die, or that my dad was gonna die, or that my dog was gonna die, or that my grandparents were gonna die, or that my friends were gonna die, and it was just looping in my head again and again. And I slowly, I guess you could say repressed it, or worked through it, depending how you look at it, as I got older, but I found myself more and more interested in death academically. And at university, I was a medieval history major, a lot of death there, and uh, (laughs) really focused on on the art of the macabre and the way that they, they handled death and the way that they visually represented death. And when I graduated, I moved out to Oakland in San Francisco in California, and I wanted to really see what actual death was like. And so I, for some reason, somebody hired me at a crematorium in Oakland, and that was my entry into the funeral industry. And I spent, uh, you know, ages 22 to 23 alone in a giant warehouse cremating bodies <laughs> day after day. And that was my somewhat harsh introduction to the world of death and to the, um, I would say, pretty substantially broken Western death system, specifically US is where I focus, but I think a lot of things can be, you know, cross-culturally examined in that way. And uh, I've been doing that ever since, and since then I've become a public advocate as well, and a writer, and um, yeah, people, uh, why it keeps working is that people feel the same way, and people show up at, you know, 9 a.m. on a Saturday (laughs) morning because they feel like something's not quite right as well. And that's
2: what we're trying to figure out and work towards. Thanks, Caitlin. Thank you. Ruth. Hi. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm obviously not from New Zealand. I met a man from Fielding in the Man of two, and ended up here with two small children. How I came to be involved in studying death was um, when my son was two months old, I got a phone call to see that my big brother had killed himself and had left four young children. This is way back in Scotland. And the usual shock and the stunning, you know, trying to figure out what was going on and wondering about um, what really was this thing that had happened and why somebody would want to go and leave us and, you know, the unravelling family that comes from that. But subsequent to that, I came back to study um, a couple of years later and it was my mother-in-law who said to me, Ruth, you need a topic to study. Why don't you look at suicide? In which I did, I did a PhD in suicide in New Zealand. I was very lucky after that. I managed to get a position here. That I did my PhD in the man two. Then I came down here. And part of my duties is to teach a course, what they call an elective. You can choose what you want. And it was got to be either sex or death. you know. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I'll go for death. <laughs> you know. Um, and it's really from that part of my professional life. Um, I have spent the last... <gasps> 13 years, at least actually 20 years, I counted it up in the car this morning, examining aspects of the hardest, challenging, most challenging thing that happens in our life, and as a sociologist I see that it's actually the most creative space, that that's where people do challenging things, that's where we figure out who we are, there's always problems, there's always challenges, but that's what's kept me going, and I've done a variety
0: of projects over that time. Thanks Ruth, and we'll come back to that point about death being a motivator for life. Um,
3: Matt? Yeah, so uh, I came to uh, be an advocate for assisted dying, probably quite reluctantly. Um, my, my wife, of course, Lucretia, uh, was diagnosed with brain cancer in uh, 2011, and uh, for, for the longest time, I suppose, um, she, she was still focused very much on living. And uh, right up, I think, until 2015, um, we didn't even talk about death much um, in the time that she was ill. It was all about going on holidays and making the most of the time that she had. Uh, but uh, eventually, I think in 2015, it uh, became apparent that, that she was going to die, and, and um, probably within sort of 12 months or so. And she began to sort of think about how that might turn out. and she was she was worried um, she uh, obviously with the symptoms that she had there was a, there was quite a risk that she would go through uh, some some pain um, but there was also the psychological and um, emotional pain of having to deal with one's own mortality and I think that was actually the bigger thing for her um, and that the sort of the existential stress of, of knowing that, that her time was finite um, so she uh, took the court case as she did to, I guess, um, regain some control over that situation, um, to be able to sort of say, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, my, it's my life and I'm going to, it's going to end the way that I want it to, not the way that the cancer wants it to. And um, so she took the court case, and, and uh, you probably all know the results of that. But uh, afterwards, I suppose, I, I felt like uh, she'd kicked something off. And a bit of a, a bit of a sort of a re-evaluation of how we think about death in this country, and um, I've I've um, I guess continued that um, felt a responsibility to do so. So so that's that's how I found my way to this. Um, it certainly wasn't by choice.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Matt. So we're going to pick up on, on quite a few of those themes that you've all touched on. Um, but I'd like to perhaps start with um, something prior to this um, this morning's session. We had a bit of an email exchange between us about what we were going to be covering and some of the, some of the ideas. And we in the, I, I inadvertently maybe sparked off something um, of a as the seed of something um, that was perhaps in dispute but it turned out to be about language, about what do we mean by a death denial culture so um, Caitlin's book talks a lot about denial, being in denial about death um, and, and the way in which that kind of um, is reflected in so many aspects of our culture. Now obviously we all you know, are aware that, that our approach to death is, is both culture bound, time bound, it changes, it evolves with our changing understanding about um, mortality and our belief systems and our values. But Ruth, you've done a lot of research in this area and, and you took, um, you, you didn't necessarily accept that this idea of denial was actually reflective of what you know of our attitudes. Can you talk a bit about that? I think the best thing to say is I took umbrage. (laughs) I was nearly going to say that. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. Um,
2: As a researcher, I think one of the things I have learned is that, I mean, as a sociologist, is that I spend a lot of time looking at our cultures and our societies. And one of the most striking things as soon as you engage with any death studies literature is that us, modern Westerners, have got a really intriguing, complex relationship with ourselves. We live in, a, in modernity, we live in a very professionalised society. We are really focused on us as individuals. It's the individualisation of society that marks us as a kind of people, as distinctive from other cultures, I think, and also historically. When it comes to death and dying, death is about how you die and the way you die is about how you live, really. That's the relationship. So as an in an individualised society, when it comes to death, of course, it is as equally as individualised. We strive for it now. And I think that's where one of the, the kind of impetuses for the critique or the move to being able to do it more individually was an... Um, Jessica, Jessica Mitford's book in, in 1963, but she first basically began to question the funeral practices. Now that's a long time ago, that's even older than me, so it's, you know, cracking on. The thing is, she started the ball rolling and she started a space in society to talk about how we do things, how we do death. Now there's a lot of critique around Jessica. She was very wealthy, she had a very aesthetic approach to death, it should be really stripped down, it should be really precise and clear and simplified, but that was associated with wealth. Okay? But it picked up, um, it stuck in the public imagination, I would say, and I would say what has come from that over <clears throat> 40-odd-plus years, if not even longer, there are two parallel movements that come with our modern society. One of them, well, they're both about individualization and autonomy. One of them is, I think, embodied in Matt's experience about um, autonomy over your own death, which is really important. And I think a new one, Caitlin, is is just as important as about to have a say on how the professions and us as individuals come together. And I think that's where the umbrage came in. It's like, no, you can't. Don't be oversimplified and that's, yeah, yeah. you know, we yeah. all get overexcited
0: when we start talking about death. Not in a creepy way. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. Sometimes in a yeah. creepy way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that's a lovely segue because um, you talk a lot about Mitford's influence on the American culture and, and mm-hmm. how you kind of now see that um, from being quite a radical kind of, yes, as you say, very stripped down ownership model. You, you experienced that differently and now you critique it through quite a different lens. Can, can you talk about where you're at and what you mean by death denial?
1: Sure. So, uh, when we talk about death denial, um, well, first of all, I could, we could talk back and yeah. forth about it's all great. those things for hours.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: you would get bored very quickly. Um, but when I talk about death denial, the reason that I use it is that I consider myself a public advocate first. Um, you know, I, I own a funeral home in Los Angeles, I work in the profession, I write now, I make ridiculous web videos, I, I do all of these things, but primarily it's, it's talking to the public is what I do. And my language is very much determined by what the public responds to. So, when I say death Denial, For the most part, people go, oh yes, that resonates with me. I feel like my family didn't talk about it. I feel like my mother died and she didn't want to talk about it and I couldn't get her medical practitioners to talk about it with us. And she died with all of these things left unsaid and undone. And for me, the term denial resonates in that way because we weren't allowed to have that discussion. So that's why I use that word. The same reason I use the word traditional burial when a lot of people think I should be using the word conventional burial, because it's you know not actually the tradition to have a super chemically embalmed body in a big heavy casket. That's not really tradition, but if I'm on a radio show and I have 30 seconds to make my pitch, traditional brings to mind the undertakers and the suits and the embalmed body, and people get that. So it is an oversimplification, mm-hmm. but it's an oversimplification because I sometimes have to speak in 30 second sound bites for, for a crowd and I wanna pick the thing that, that resonates with them most, mm. I guess. Um, and as far as Jessica Mitford, shes I don't think it can be overstated what a huge influence she was on specifically American death. She advocated for, and actually the crematorium that I started working at actually cremated her. So I have this kind of, I feel like I have picked up her mantle in a weird cosmic way that is just <laughs> totally in my head. Um, he blinked and, uh, <laughs> She, she was very much against all of the foppery and the excesses of the 1950s post-war American death model. And she said, you should just get a $400 direct cremation, cardboard box, cremated, nobody sees the body, you get some ashes back. And I think that for, for people who wanted a simpler, less expensive, less ostentatious way of death, that was a wonderful thing but now people almost just say that out of habit they say oh it's the simple way to do it don't do you know don't go to any trouble don't mm-hmm. do that but what we find is that families when someone dies they want to go to trouble they want to be involved they want to be there so i guess what my specific advocacy is is trying to find a way that's not more expensive but that families can still be involved And and, uh, it's not in the professional context. It's the family specifically having tasks and having rituals that that aren't connected to paying a ton of money
0: for your funeral. Yeah. Yeah. So, picking up on the point you made, Ruth, about you know how you live is how you die, yeah. and there's this continuity, and you can't simply um, expect to have a good death if you haven't actually taken care of or addressed these issues in your life. Matt, when we're talking about assisted dying, um, that's part of that spectrum, isn't it, in terms of the, for, for what Lucretia wanted in terms of a good death. There's a lot of conversation about that now in terms of, you know, The fact that 65% of us will end our days in a rest home. Um, We won't be necessarily surrounded by family. Our families are smaller, they're they're, they're, um, all dissipated around the world. The structures that, you know, traditionally, um, and you see this in in Māori culture, um, meant that you were linking back to family and to land and all those connections. A lot of that's kind of, um, is now challenged by the way we live. But, um, you know, Atul Gawandi talking about, you know, what the research tells us about what people want um, as part of a good death and what what they need, and one of the things that comes up again and again is wanting to be in control if they have to face death. Mm -hmm. Um, I wondered whether you might like to just perhaps read Lucretia's words about what it meant to be in control and what she wanted out of a good death. Sure, I can do that. So the passage um, Matt, Matt's reading is um, something Lucretia wrote when she was trying to um, explain for the first time in a public sense um, why it was that she, in her last kind of months on earth, was stepping up into this very um, difficult area of um, advocating law reform around assisted dying.
3: There's there's one caveat that I want to sort of talk about first before I read. Um, so so in, in, in this passage, Lucretia talks about um, the experience of, of disability, of um, being in a in a in a place where uh, she's lost the control of her body, and um, she was criticised a lot uh, for 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 some of the things she said um, because uh, there's this sense that uh, if you're disabled, um, we if if you criticise just criticise the, 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 the fact that you're disabled and you're actually saying that some sort of lives, lives aren't worth living. Um, but the thing about Lucretia was that she was dying. Um, she, wasn't, she wasn't living, she was dying. And uh, the disability was, was part of that, but not all of that. And um, I just wanted to say that, but anyway, I'll, I'll get started. When I was first diagnosed with brain cancer, I was told I would only have weeks to live unless I had an urgent surgery. That was three and a half years ago, when I was 37 years old. Over the ensuing years, I have had brain surgery to prune the tumour, as well as radiation therapy and chemotherapy, in a bid to control the growth of the tumour. I have recently embarked on a different chemotherapy regimen and remain very hopeful that this will stave things off for another few years. Ultimately, though, there is only one way my story can end. Life is not the same as it was pre-cancer. I am unable to see anything left of centre. The left side of my body does not move very well. I have difficulty walking, typing with my left hand and eating with a knife and fork. I require assistance from my husband to get dressed each morning. I'm not allowed to drive. I've lost spatial awareness and get lost easily in new places. I constantly bump into things. My balance has been affected and I have falls like an old woman. My head is scarred and bald and patches from radiation burns. From time to time, I have searing headaches. My dreams for the future have been dashed and yet I still have so much to be thankful for. My cognitive ability has not been affected, so I'm able to continue working as a senior legal and policy advisor at the Law Commission, albeit with shorter hours as I tire easily. I am presently the lead advisor on the Commission's review of contempt of court. Being near death prompted an outpouring of love and support from friends and family that most people never have the opportunity to experience in their lifetime. I continue to live my life to the fullest, including traveling to exotic and exciting places, I have wonderful friends and family to share my precious time with. I'm not afraid of dying, but I am petrified by what may happen to me in the lead up to my death. My greatest fear is losing my mental faculties and leaving my husband with a mad wife to deal with, like Mr. Rochester and Jane Eyre. As far as I'm concerned, if I get to the point where I can no longer recognize or communicate with my husband, then for all intents and purposes, I will already be dead. Why string out the process of actually dying? nor do I wish to be a prisoner in my own body, unable to move and lying in my own excrement. That's not a dignified way to die. Why can't we make choices, informed choices, regarding the timing and manner of our death, so death is as pleasant a process as possible? I believe it is a fundamental human right to choose to die when life has become intolerable because of the effects of a terminal illness or debilitating condition. I'm not sure I could actually exercise that right if I had it, but I should at least have the choice. I might stop there. Yep.
0: Um, Matt, just following on from that, um, Matt presented before the Select Committee, Health Select Committee, um, on Wednesday, who are hearing submissions on <coughs> the um, case for um, change to the legislation in New Zealand allowing for assisted dying. Um, Matt, I was really um, struck by um, some of the things you spoke about in your submission about the way in which having um, a legal option around assisted dying for the terminally ill actually allowed for quite a different framing of the conversation between physician and patient and can you talk a bit about that and what the research tells us about that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, <laughs> uh, part of the evidence that was gathered for Lucretia's case uh, was some t- uh, testimony from doctors and, and uh, health professionals in Oregon. So Oregon's had assisted dying laws uh, since 1995, um, so 20 years uh, longer than any other jurisdiction in the world, unless you count Switzerland which is possibly it's a bit funny, the law's there I think. You can assist someone to die in Switzerland uh, as long as you don't have a selfish motive and I think that's been around since the 1940s. Um, but in yeah, so Oregon, uh, Oregon's probably the, the, the jurisdiction in which um, we, we know the most about how assisted dying works and um, one of the doctors, or actually a couple of the doctors there, talked about their experience of, um, of prescribing life-ending medication to patients and um, both of them hadn't prescribed it all that much, you know, maybe maybe 20 times in their entire career, that sort of, that sort of thing. And they talked about how when a patient comes to them and asks for, for the life-ending medication, it's not an automatic yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, that's the invitation to begin a conversation about that patient's fears about death, um, the things that they're worried about, um, the, the values that they have, and often that conversation will end in um, that patient saying, well, palliative care sounds fine, I'll, I'll just go with that, thank you. But it's nice to know that the option is available. Um, and it's actually very, very few people that progress to the point where they actually want to take a prescription. But those that do, um, they experience a great relief. Suddenly they have something in their pocket which they can, they can exercise control over the situation. So, the numbers are really low. Uh, I think last year about 250 thereabouts prescriptions were were issued to patients in Oregon. Uh, Only about 140 something were actually taken. Um, So, very low numbers. Um, It's quite funny in the Family First submission uh, about about, uh, those prescriptions in Oregon, um, I think in the first year in 1995 there was like 14, 15 people that had taken the prescription and then 140. Um, in, in, in more recent years. Um, so it's low numbers, but they painted that as a 676% increase in the number of people that were taking these prescriptions. So it's kind of funny how they, they paint that picture. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is a positive thing and uh, yeah, I think uh, it, does, it does change the nature of the conversation. Um, I think uh, when you approach a doctor and, and you talk about the fact that you might want to die in New Zealand. Um, they're very scared of that. They're very scared of you talking to them about that, and um, if you persist and sort of say, "Well, that's what I want," you know, um, there's this fear around. Well, I'm, I'm going to get prosecuted if I help you, and you know, all that sort of thing. So, so um, yeah, I think assisted dying legislation actually uh, makes those conversations better, and that's what we've seen in Oregon. Thanks, Matt. Um,
0: Caitlin, can I um, just ask you to talk a bit about um, what your experience? I mean, I'm not, not necessarily on the assisted dying piece, but on that whole idea of control um, and how, I mean, in some senses, that seems like a bit of an oxymoron the whole idea that we should aim for control and um, autonomy in something which inevitably aging is about loss of control it's about um, giving up and becoming dependent again so you know Ruth you said this is very much a modern construct mm-hmm. are we actually is this just a vanity you know wh- why do we want control why don't we why aren't we able to accept the inevitability
1: that's so hard because when you, control is such a loaded word like denial mm-hmm. such a loaded word and you know you have the idea of the the buddhist way of looking at it which is <laughs> that we should be giving up that control and when we're facing difficult things we should you know, not, uh, you know, in, in the US we would say, Jesus, take the wheel, you know, and just give <laughs> yeah. it over to someone else. Um, higher power, or the universe, or however you want to see it. Um, but then there's me, and control resonates with me. I, I think, heck yes, I, I want it. And we were, Matt and I were talking earlier about is, are these movements both uh, aid in dying, or uh, the natural death and burial, or the, home death movement, are these a feminist issue? And I think that they are, absolutely, because I believe that women, specifically in in the Western culture, want more control over their bodies. And that's during life, and that's in the dying process, and that's in death as well. And they don't want the government or the professionals or whoever it is, to say, actually, you can do this, but you can't do this. And I think that control is important, and in that way. And what you mentioned that was so brilliant, and I was because I live in California, we've spent the last year advocating for the End of Life Option Act, which did just pass, which allows aid in dying in California. Um, which I don't want to say I'm very excited about, but I am, I am very excited that it passed because, you know, we worked, we worked really hard to make it happen. And one of my favorite statistics to use was how few people actually took the life-ending drugs that were prescribed them, but just knowing that they were in the freezer, just that feeling of not necessarily control but autonomy, and that if this gets so bad that I just can't do it anymore, the fridge is right there. And because it doesn't mean that it's not happening if you legislate it away. It's still happening. It's just happening under the shadow of pain and the law and confusion and feeling very transgressive, Mm -hmm. and it's never gonna be a beautiful open death. There's no chance for it if Mm -hmm. we don't give people the legal opportunity to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, so control is gonna be a loaded word, but I don't know. I kind of want it for my own death, and I want because it's it's such a chaotic time, and to have these little things like that that are somewhat measures of control, I think can bring a lot of empowerment to the dying process. Absolutely.
0: Um Ruth, can you uh, maybe talk a little bit about from your research what your understanding is of what New Zealanders, um, what their aspirations are around death, what their expectations are? Um, is, it, is it possible to speak about that as a you know as a population base, or is it just so diverse? Um, in terms of
2: yeah yeah can um, I think New Zealanders very very broadly speaking are part of that same movement wanting control and you're right control is contestable because we can actually all kill ourselves when we want to I think maybe a key word is legitimate you know we want to feel that it is legitimate and it's okay and we've got the backing of legislation and we've got the support of medicine really you know and so and that's where the kind of wrestling for control is going on and we've all got probably very similar positions and perspectives on what we think the right things should be Mm -hmm. but trying to figure out well where do New Zealanders want to go I do think honestly we'll drag our heels a little bit it will be where other countries perhaps maybe when Australia gets the legislation together, because to, to make that possible in New Zealand, I do think it does require quite a big bureaucratic um, system put in place. There will be, It will be medicalised, there will be two doctors, maybe one who knows you, it will be probably if you've got a terminal illness. I was asking myself... Um, in the middle of the night, last night actually. Well, when when is a good time to die? We do all want the Hollywood ending. Most of us don't get it. Life is like that. We don't get the Hollywood life, so why should we expect the Hollywood death? But when is that point right for you? My mother-in-law died very recently and we were having these conversations. And it is really difficult to know because maybe the point when you know that enough is enough you're not physically able to get to the fridge. And that's where that really difficult, messy time comes in where you need other people. Mm -hmm. And this is where medicine and this is where the law trundles in and... Lots of
0: other um, mm. mm. baggage comes with it, I yeah. think. <clears throat> Matt, Matt, you've read almost all the submissions, I think, haven't yeah. you? To, to... Oh, not quite. Okay, well, a there's, lot of them. 20,000 of, 20, of them. <laughs> of them. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Matt being a techie, he downloaded them all and it sort of hyper-analyzed them by about, you know, 2 a.m. on the first morning. Anyway, could you want to respond to Ruth's you know rather pessimistic view about where this might go, or do you think she's realistic? Oh,
3: no I think, uh, I think that is probably quite realistic. Um, I, I'm still hopeful that, that when the select committee actually starts to review the evidence and does so objectively that they'll come up with a recommendation to change the legislation um, but that doesn't actually automatically translate into the parliament um, creating a bill or, or supporting a bill. So yeah it might take a few years. Um, it was interesting what you were saying before uh, about about control and, 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 and the right point around enough is enough. Yeah. Um, and, and in a way I think this legislation is is not really about the end, it's about the lead up to it and the, the, the existential um, psychological uh, sense of control. So when Lucretia was um, coming towards the end, you know, I'm not sure she would have made that choice in the end. I'm not sure that she would have chosen to take uh, or be assisted to die. Um, but it, having the choice up until that point was the important thing to her because that, that uh, respected her autonomy, respected um, her ability to have some say over, of, over how things sort of panned out. And I, I think that's, that's why this legislation is important because it, 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 takes, it, it gives a person – it's all a one day thing about being you know, patient centric and have, giving a patient control over the situation um, versus um, being a victim of your illness, um, so yeah, it's important.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm wanting to leave a healthy chunk of time for questioning, but I would just like to cover, cover off, um, because it sort of makes sense I guess, the actual um, switch to the perspective of the grievers, the mourners, and what people, um, h- how people are responding to the challenge of um, you know, dealing with grief and dealing with the industry and taking back some kind of control in that space. Caitlin, you, you, I've heard you talking about being quite surprised by the speed with which people have responded to what you've been offering within your, within your service. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure, so I mean,
1: obviously my perspective is skewed because you know, if, you're, if you're gonna come to me, you already sort of know what you're getting into. Um, <laughs> people don't wander, I say people don't have any surprise home funerals. So just for, <laughs> uh, for a definition, for those of you who don't know what a home funeral is, it's confusing because there are funeral homes and then home funerals. Home funerals are when somebody perhaps dies under hospice care or palliative care in the home and they choose, the family chooses to keep the body at home as opposed to letting a funeral director come and pick it up and take it away and put the makeup on and the suit and all the whole thing and uh, that could be for two hours, that could be for a day, that could be for two days, however long they need to, to feel comfortable with, with the death and ready to let the person go. And uh, people, people really have been responding to it. I, the funeral home that I have in Los Angeles is called Undertaking LA, and it's, uh, that's the primary focus of it. And I think the biggest thing that we've discovered so far, we've only been open nine months, so we don't have full data yet, but the most impressive thing that we discovered is that we offer a service where we will go to the home and help the family prepare the body and lay it out, and then we'll, we'll respectfully show ourselves out. Nobody has done that yet. Because what we found is that when you give a family the information in advance, and you tell them that it's safe, and you tell them that it's legal, and you tell them how to do it, they just do it themselves. Mm -hmm. We haven't had to come into the home, but we've done many, many home funerals, you could say, but we haven't even been there. And that, to us, my partner and I, is like, oh, yes! Um, Because that kind of proves the point of how easy this is and how instinctual it is because if I, just put, if I just brought out a random corpse, rolled it into the center of the room, and said, somebody come wash and dress and take care of this body, I don't think I'd have many volunteers in the audience. But if it was your mother, if it was your partner, something about that dead body changes fundamentally, and it's a different connection, and, and you feel the, the drive to want to do it, or many people do, that we've found. Um, So I think that almost really, it's mostly about education. It's about drilling into people's minds, safe, legal, safe, legal, safe, legal. Because for a lot of people, there's still that kind of transgressive edge to it. Like, am I supposed to be touching a dead body? Like, isn't it gonna, you know, give me Ebola? No, Um,
2: yeah,
1: Ebola didn't spring up in your mother with pancreatic cancer after she died. Um, So yeah, safe and legal, safe and legal, and people are, are very quickly can come back around to doing it themselves. Yeah.
0: In your book, you um, you know you do not spare the reader from um, having to confront what happens to the body when it's decomposing, and in particular a body that has had a disease process, an active disease process for a long time, always been you know not particularly well looked after. So you know you you make some very strong statements about the fact that you believe we need to be confronted with decomposition, we need to be confronted with with the reality of our mortal coil. That, where do you get that idea from? What is wrong with actually preserving one's image of the embalmed body as, you know, because that's what it's trying to do is soften that that process. I mean, why are you so vehement about that?
1: Well, you know, first of all, I don't think that our unrealistic beauty standards in life need to be extended post-mortem. A dead body is beautiful in its own way. And I think that a lot of people have an idea of what the unmediated dead body looks like that's pretty horrifying, because not a lot of people... Like, how many of you in here have seen a, a dead body? by show of hands. That's a lot of you. Whoa. This is, I mean, I guess you chose to come here at night on a Saturday morning, so this is not going to be a totally unbiased crowd. Um, there's something very profound and beautiful about the unmade-up, unembalmed, dead body. Um, it is the person, but the longer that you sit with the person, the more it's obvious that dead is dead that this person has left the building in a very profound way. You may believe they're somewhere else now, but they're not there. And you can, you can really sense that in, in the corpse. And by trying to create these illusions and these mirages and w- the way that I believe that it works in many, especially American funeral homes now, is you come and you take the dead body you do things behind the scenes that nobody gets to see, and then you essentially sell back this made-up corpse to the family for a substantial amount of money. And it's up to the family now to decide, is that a worthwhile transaction for me? Like, do I want the corpse taken behind the scenes, gussied up and sold back to me? And if that is worthwhile to you, I'm, I'm not saying don't do it, please do, but, there are other ways. And I think I've never had, in my years of doing this, I've never had anyone say, I sat with mom's body for two or three hours after she died and God, I wish I hadn't done it. Mm. Her body was gross, it was too much. Almost universally, they say, you know, it was hard, it was confronting, but that was my mom and something shifted in me and I felt like I was there and it, and it kick-started my grieving process in a different way than it may have otherwise. Mm-hmm.
0: Ruth, as in, you, as in America, there's actually nothing legally to um, require people to use funeral directors. Indeed, there's very little um, legal obligation other than to dispose of a body in a, in, a, in a respectful way and in good time. Can you talk to us about what you think the changes are that are required, if they are in, required in the funeral industry to facilitate That's the type of thing that Caitlin's talking about? In New Zealand? Yeah.
2: Well, actually, there isn't that much legislation, so it is possible already. It's like it's not been legislated for. Yeah, I did a study with a colleague who died recently um, on the cost of funerals in New Zealand and our attitudes to the cost of uh, funerals in New Zealand, and we explored quite a lot this issue of the DIY funeral. In, well, New Zealand's got quite a. Um, an attitude to doing things themselves. When I first came over, it took me a while to understand what the importance of a bit of number eight wire was in the New Zealand psyche, and that means we can fix it ourselves, all we need is a bit of wire, you know, which is awesome. When we did the study, one of the most striking things that came out was, you know, we did a cross-section of the population, and it was younger people who had no experience of being involved with the funeral were much more, we should do it all ourselves, it's all terrible, you know, like you say, the the mythical scary dead body, we must take them back and love them. But it was mostly older women who had cared for and um, had to deal with organising a funeral that were actually much more willing to use the professionals, but in that more attenuated way They understood that you could actually negotiate, well, I want to pick flowers for my garden. My friends from the Rotary Club are going to do the food. you know, people piece things together. And what we found was that more, more than we expected of the funeral homes, were willing to negotiate around those things. And that was a real surprising feature. So in some ways, New Zealand is potentially a way ahead. You know, but because legally there's nothing. As long as you've got the right forms, that you have the legal right to bury this body. Yeah. You know that it has been certified dead and hasn't been murdered. Blah blah blah. Yeah.
0: You can do anything yeah. with them, yeah. One one of the things that does, does um, strike me though, in thinking about what you're talking about, Caitlin, where's the money in it? In the sense that, mm. you know, I think we when we looked at the funeral industry. <laughs> You know, the funeral industry's willingness to unbundle its services so that you could go to them just for a coffin, or just for this, or just for that, that's, we're still a long way away from that. Sounds there? like
3: telecom. Telecom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, unbundled services. Yeah. Here. Okay. But, Caitlin, seriously, if, if you've got families who actually can do it themselves, mm-hmm. then they're, ne- they're not going to pay you, are they?
1: They aren't, and uh, we're actually the only nonprofit funeral home in Los Angeles. Um, uh, which, as, as of right now, means that uh, we don't make any money, for sure. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of legislation in the U.S. that's desperately set up to protect the industry as it is right now, because if all of this stuff actually does shift and happen, there is no profit margin that, that exists for a funeral director anymore and um, that's a real problem for them, obviously. Can I obviously. ask a Christian sure. is, it,
3: is, it, is it to protect the industry, or is it to protect, protect people's beliefs or religious beliefs around death?
1: You know, that, when I set out, I thought that was gonna be much more involved than it was, mm-hmm. but I, I find it very rare that somebody says, people, people associate the embalmed body in the US with a big Christian, with the mass and with a burial, and I, I have never honestly heard anyone say, "Oh, we, we embalmed because it's the Christian thing to do." That's what funeral directors say, but that's not what families say. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and obviously there's you know if you're Jewish or you're Muslim or um, that sort of religion, you have specific beliefs around the burial and the death. But you know, the Catholic Church okayed cremation in like 1963 or something. We've been off that for a while. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't find that very often. Um, but it is, it is, it's very much run by the funeral directors. And they have, in the US, I'm not sure about New Zealand, there are huge lobbies that go to the governments of each individual state and make sure, and we were, I was talking earlier about something, I'll say it very briefly, because it's not super uh, fun to talk about, but ready to embalm laws, which are in 29 of the 50 <coughs> US states, which means a funeral home has to be ready to embalm at any time, which is the equivalent of saying a vegetarian restaurant needs to be ready to make steaks and have the steaks in stock at any time, even if that funeral home says, but we actually offer natural burials and we offer cremation and we offer home funerals. (coughs) We don't wanna have anybody embalmed. There's lots of places in town that can embalm if they need it, but we don't wanna do that. No, you have to pay the hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up a facility with embalming equipment, with a ventilated room. Some places have to have six full-sized caskets on premise. Well, what if I don't sell caskets? Too bad. Mm. You have to have a hearse. Well, we don't use a hearse. We use a, you know, a Prius. <laughs> nope, can't, can't do it. Um, so by having those laws in place, they're effectively meaning that anyone who's a young woman who's a minority business owner, anyone who wants to start a smaller funeral home offering specific things is completely unable to do so in the market. In California, I'm lucky we're not a ready-to-embalm state. So funeral directors are actively worried about this and lobbying to keep those things in place because they don't want that to happen. They're already, you know, most funeral directors are still talking about the cremation problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. like that's where they yeah. are yeah. in the process.
0: I mean, we, we're just about out of time but one of the things that listening to this conversation I'm very mindful of is that Māori tikanga um, and the tangihanga is a very intact part of Māori culture here and that does have a requirement not just of hours with the body but days mm. with the body and for Māori, you know, cremation is not an option and embalming is used for that very reason, because this is a very public event, um, the body's on display, it goes literally for days, and sometimes it takes days for people to be able to gather from all around the country or sometimes around the world. So where are we at with alternatives to embalming if you don't want to have that intrusive process but you do want a body to remain um, intact and um, able to be viewed for quite a long time?
1: Well, you know the body is volatile after death, as we talked about, especially given how the person died, what the medical issues were. I I often said embalming is a fine choice if the body needs like its big day out. You know, if the body if the body is flying to Berlin or to you know across the world, if the body is going on display in a huge public way for days and days and days you might want to consider embalming because you want that corpse to move around, you want to put it different places, you want everybody to be touching it. Yeah, if that's, if that's your main focus, embalming's not a terrible idea, but have to have every body, every body, dead body, that goes through the system be embalmed no matter what,
0: that's yeah. that's the issue. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Thank you. Look, I'm just gonna I'm going to pause here because we've got about 10 minutes left, and I'm sure that you've got questions um, for our panelists. Um, so, yeah, could you um, speak loudly and maybe um, yeah tell us who your questions directed to? Hi. Um, probably to Ruth. I want
2: to go back to the
4: assisted um, dying process, mm-hmm. and a uh, the states and there mm-hmm. are several states now that have that, but most of it is with, with the medical. Um, Community deems a terminal illness. But then you get something like dementia or Alzheimer's, where at the time that it would be appropriate, (coughs) the person is no longer capable of acting. And I'm wondering if there's any change that you've seen or on the horizon, because the only way
2: to do it then is assisted, and there aren't. They're not of sound mind and body at the time to make the decision yet. I think that's one of the really. This is me with my sociology hat on. I think issues around slow degenerative death, like dementia, is one of the key problems of our, key questions of our generation. We have got the technology to keep us going when otherwise we shouldn't. And that's one of the downsides, really, is if it is our brain that goes, if it is our faculties. It's like our social institutions haven't caught up with where we are with our technological abilities, yeah? We can keep ourselves going, but the quality of our lives become really problematic. Um, There are debates going on about um, how to set that up. We have advanced directives, but they're actually not legally binding. You know, so you can say, well, at some point when I lose my marbles, I want you to do X, Y, and Z it's very, very difficult to apply those wishes. So ultimately, even though we live you know, in a modern society where autonomy, the individual autonomy is king or queen, actually it's not. It's medicine, it's legislation that will trump us every time. And I can understand that actually, because there comes a point like, we might all want this personal control, but if you vest it all in us as an individual, it be, does become a little bit easier to, dare I say, be a little bit manipulated. That is the danger, and they talk about it as the slippery slope, you know. I think that can be totally inflated as an argument, as you've said, like, you know, oh, you know, everybody's gonna to want to kill themselves if you legislate for it. Actually, it's not true. Yeah. I think what you've said the, um, in Oregon is, shown in other places where they've brought that in, in the Netherlands and Denmark. Less people actually take the um, euthanizing medication than perhaps would kill themselves Ill- illegally or you know, transgressively.
3: There was something I wanted to um, say on that point actually, because it was one of the things that I struggled with the most, so um, Lucretia actually did an advanced directive um, sort of laying out what she wanted to happen um, and one of the things was that was in there was when she got to the point where she was no longer mentally competent um, power shifted to me through power of attorney if the law allowed it so if, if she got a judgment that would have helped her um, she would have effectively given me power to um, say that you know, to, to, to get her help to die um, but I really wrestled with that and the reason I did is because you're, you're dealing with two different people you're dealing with the incompetent person. Um, who, who may have other ideas about death than the past self, who um, did not want to be in that situation? Mm-hmm. So, which of those two people do you respect? Mm-hmm. You know, who, who, who do you, whose wishes do you respect? Um, so, I, I'm not saying that there's an answer to that. I, I don't know, but um, mm-hmm. it's it's a really tricky one. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yes. Caitlin, okay, do you want to answer? So,
1: so you're talking about the conversation with your children about what you want. Do you have a sense of what you want? Um, I have a sense that, I, that I, uh, I'm, I'm, i slightly, I probably in the next version through is true, and <clears throat> I, um, you know, slightly
4: you've been watching J and with us and keeping his body and in frozen on us. <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to What I should be saying
1: to them, because I know it was difficult in the family, so mm-hmm. getting, getting it there on myself. Sure. Were they there for his death? One of the two um, was just because the other one
4: was involved in the
1: other What's really What I really love about figuring out what you want is the conversations that can be opened, especially between parents and children, or between spouses and partners, to you know, you may start talking about death, but it might open up all sorts of other discussions as well. So it would be a really excellent starting point to ask the, the child that was there, how did you feel about it? Were, were there issues? Did you feel uncomfortable? Because, you know, I'm not dying right now, but I will be someday, and this is part of what I want. I find that in most situations, children want something to do. They want a task. They, I worked for a long time in completely direct cremation, which means no service, no nothing, all you do is talk to the funeral director on the phone, and that's your only task. Mm-hmm. And people don't feel great about that. They want to do more. And when parents say, don't go to any trouble, don't do a thing when I die, that can actually leave some children feeling a little a little hollow. Um, so talk it through and say, I don't want to make you do anything you're uncomfortable with, <laughs> but I also have these things that would mean a lot to me. And so if most children, if they know that they're doing something that's gonna mean a lot to you, that will mean a lot to them Mm -hmm. as well, because honoring someone's wishes is one of the best feelings in the world. So just being really open with them about what you might want and would they be comfortable, so giving them the agency to say no to certain things, but coming to a place far in advance of what you might want, I I think that's a really beautiful conversation and, and one you should be having and that's like so exciting that you're here to, to start
0: mm-hmm. that. John?
4: Hi, um, <clears throat> horrible is it my, I just want to give a quick bit of context in that my question relates to having been involved in a number of funerals the years as a servant. I became involved because of the conversation, the narrative, and what will grow from it. Changing the funeral industry is about, and this is what I want to know <laughs> how one would do this, My view, point of contact. The first person who says, Ah, I will look after the deceased, Mm -hmm. owns the conversation from Mm thereon. 99% of the time in this country is a funeral director. Mm -hmm. 99% of the time in this country, that means a commercial imperative. It cannot be changed from without, only within. You don't exist here. You exist outside the industry. Not within really. it. How do you become part of the change within the funeral industry, which is determined to keep things exactly as they are?
1: There? Uh, well, okay. <laughs> uh, I, will, I will not talk about this for four hours as I want to. But um, <laughs> I uh, honestly, I mean, I am part of the industry. And the reason, yes. the reason that I went to mortuary school in the United States, which is a heinous, unnecessary process went to mortuary school, have worked in mortuaries, multiple mortuaries, have done all these jobs, is because I wanted to be able to say, yes, I am a mortician, I did graduate, I do have a license, and I still think all of this is wrong. Because what had been happening before that is there were amazing people who were midwives or people who existed outside of the industry, and the industry was saying, oh, those hippy-dippy people, they're not real funeral directors, they don't really understand, and that was their way to discredit people from outside the industry who had critiques. So part of my evil plan was to start within the industry to have those critiques, and, and honestly, my main focus now is having change come from the outside, although that doesn't always work, you're right, but also there are a huge amount of people entering the funeral industry, especially in the US and and in other Western countries who are women, who are young women, um, and who are very much aligned with the things that myself and, and other people in the movement are saying. So they're starting, and they're not having an easy time of it because they're entering the old boys club, um, They'll but- They'll die
2: off. What? They'll die off. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> so I was, that's what I always
1: think. I wasn't gonna say that in this, in this crowd, but um, that's the hope, is that, uh, you know, And and they are, but they are having an influence, and the people who, um, are entering the funeral industry are much I think much less likely to be indoctrinated into this one way of doing things because they're not just hearing that narrative if they're online or if anybody knows that they're a funeral director They're going to be getting exposure to other things as well And they're trying know so many young women and men right now who are in the industry working in the belly of the beast of the industry who are trying to suggest different things to their employers, who are trying to demand different things of their employers with varying degrees of success. But I do really believe that the next generation, and there are other people who have been outside the industry who are getting their licenses, who are getting what they need to do to open. And I know there are funeral homes in New Zealand that are natural-based, that do offer home funerals, and I've spoken to several practitioners in advance of coming here. So the change is slow, but I absolutely agree with you that it has to come strongly from inside as well as from outside, because outside is everyone's well-intentioned and very well-educated, but it's so strong. The narratives that funeral directors tell themselves, the grand narratives about their place in society is so strong that it has to be broken from the inside as well. We've
0: probably got time for one more question.
4: So I'm not to that it's actually real and
2: so Do you have a pet?
4: Uh, we do.
2: Because often that is where we learn our grief scripts through the death of pets, goldfish are quite don't laugh. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, it, 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 you, you, you can see it in a funny way, but actually, as as a role, role as parents is absolutely crucial around death, and it's. Um, I think that's where you know pets really play a significant role, especially when they go and you know there's actually lots of stuff on YouTube about um, the death of Twinkles, I think it is, and mm-hmm. it's a little girl and a, you know it's floating on the top, and Mum talks through all the different things and. I think one of the important things is like, ceremony is really important. As you've mentioned, we can clear everything out, strip it away, but actually as people, we are meaning makers, we need symbolic things. We need things that resonate powerfully with us and you can show your child. Even flowers come and go, you know? You can talk about that and it's a part of life and it's an all right part of life. It can be scary and yes, everybody will die. Not planning to for a long time, you know? But you know, we we have to show them. So how we show them is what will be carried forward. I mean, you would have. Yeah, I would have. Say. I would
1: have loved that as a child myself. And even that, even the fact that you're talking about this mm-hmm. and you care about your child's death education is like massive first yeah. step number one. And that you're taking it seriously. And just letting your child know that any question is safe mm-hmm. to be asked. You know, if they want, it, if. if Goldfish, you know, Mr. Wiggles dies or whatever it is, and you have the ceremony, ceremonies are okay. Grief is okay. Mm -hmm. Having questions about death is okay. And even he can ask you, is it he? I'm sorry, is it? Yeah, he he can ask you anything, and you might not know the answer, but it's the, the safe space for the questions is there and set up for him no matter what happens.
0: That's probably a great place to end. Thank you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've well, been given we'll strict instructions. Yeah. Right? Actually, okay, so, so I'm going to us... bring the panelists out into the foyer where they will be signing books. And if you want to continue the conversation, <laughs> that will be wonderful. But I'm under strict instructions to end it. So thank you all for being such a wonderful audience. And thank you to our panelists. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you.